Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, why are East Asians culturally tight collectivists? East Asians typically prefer social cohesion and harmony rather than self-expression and individualism. They are culturally tight. While Latin Americans believe it's fine to pick and choose your friends, East Asians tend to expect group loyalty. Why might this be? Well, let's explore four hypotheses. Rice, socioeconomic threats, Confucianism and authoritarianism. These could be mutually reinforcing. In environments that reward coordination, people may teach their children to conform. Confucian ideologies may then seem more appealing and once institutionalised favour with people with particular psychologies. And... Even after millennia of cultural evolution, nothing is set in stone. It is continually contested, as I will demonstrate in the case of South Korea. My goal, perhaps yours too, is to understand this historical process. Uh, if you'd like to see the descriptive data, uh, there are some graphs on my substack, which I'll link. Okay, let's talk about rice. So paddy rice farming was very different from wheat, corn and potatoes. It required double the labour per hectare as wheat farming. Sharing labour became essential. Keeping paddy rice permanently flooded also required cooperation. Farmers coordinated to regulate water levels, the distribution of water between fields and also canal repair. Has this ancestral technology shaped culture? Thomas Telhelm and colleagues find that rice farming is associated with cultural tightness. This holds worldwide and within China. Wheat is grown in China's arid north, rice in the wetter south. High school students from rice-grown counties tend to think more holistically. Thanks to the Yellow River, rice can also be grown on a few isolated counties in North China. Students from these rice-grown communities also tend to think more holistically, favour their in-group and show less individualism. This theory also holds up for 1900 USA. People from counties where crops required more labour were less individualistic. This paper by Martin Fitzbain and colleagues is useful as it tests the effects of agrarian interdependence in the absence of Confucian culture and institutions. Okay, now here's another hypothesis for you. Socioeconomic threats. Cultural tightness is high amongst communities that have experienced socioecological threats like pathogens, disasters, harsh climates, population density, resource scarcity, and conflict. This holds both internationally and within the US, as demonstrated by Michelle Gelfander and co authors. More recent research shows that earthquakes and droughts increase religiosity. Terrorism similarly increases votes for the far right in Germany. Existential threats may trigger anxiety, motivating group conformity and normative policing. Fearful people want their group to be strong and united in solidarity. They rally in support of authoritarian leaders and strictly punish non-violators. But, here's a question for you, what about Latin America? Violence is surely a terrifying existential threat. As some of you know, I was punched in the face in Oaxaca. Yet crime persists alongside cultural looseness. That doesn't seem to square. 
to me at least. Okay, next hypothesis. Confucianism. Confucianism emphasizes subordination to one's parents, one's husband, and ultimately the emperor. For over 2,000 years, China's rulers instilled these norms. Now guess what? Crop failures triggered fewer peasant rebellions in counties with more Confucian temples and widow chastity. Even if people were starving, culture seems to have suppressed dissent. Culture matters, even controlling for state capacity, as proxied by imperial soldiers, granaries, land taxes, and a county's political status. That's a paper by Kung and Ma in JDE. Okay, now here's another hypothesis for you. Authoritarianism. Confucianism became hegemonic under authoritarianism, so we really ought to disentangle the two. Since the 6th century, China's bureaucrats have been selected through the Keiju civil service exams. This meritocratic institution has been enormously important, argues Yashen Huang in his new book, The Rise and Fall of the East. To overcome resistance from aristocratic families, Empress Wu Zetian opened up the bureaucracy. Tens of thousands came. The Keiju provided a meritocratic pathway to respectability. Candidates wrote their answers in a private booth, then their answers were transcribed. Double-blind exams. It was the premium channel for upward social mobility, far more efficient than commerce, religion, intelligentsia and political oppositions. But this was common knowledge, suggests Yashan Huang. So stories about commoners being propelled to the elite functioned, is what he calls it, an opium of the masses. The Chinese dream, so to speak. If you memorise Confucianism, you could achieve great riches. So that's a pretty good incentive for Confucianism, right? During the Ming, two to three million regularly took the qualifying test. The most intelligent and ambitious men spent years, if not decades, memorizing these ancient texts. Answers were already established. There was no room for questioning or creativity. The Keiju system was also adopted in Vietnam, Korea, and more briefly Japan. Now, I suggest that Confucianism may have also spread via prestige bias. Literature lavished praise on women who sacrificed for their families. Footbinding coincided with bureaucratic expansion under the Song. Girls' feet were broken and bound in the hope of attracting an upstart Confucian. But, you may be wondering, perhaps China was already culturally tight due to threats or paddy rice. Well, there's some evidence of change over time. During the Han Sui Interregnum and the Warring States period, China produced a plethora of inventions. Creativity actually peaked when China was politically fragmented and ideologically diverse. This uh, is from Yashen Huang's book, where he maps out uh, the number of innovations per capita in each Chinese imperial dynasty. So, it seems like absent centralised authority, China also had a golden age of, of philosophy, 
This was called the Hundred Schools of Thought. That also included more female-friendly Taoism. So perhaps cultural tightness stems not from agrarian interdependence, but authoritarian institutions, which then spread across East Asia. So let's look more closely at South Korea. Korea was historically rice-based, but that did not preclude ideological diversity. Totemism, shamanism, Taoism, Buddhism and Confucianism all competed. Patriarchal strictures were far weaker. Shamans were usually women. Three empresses led the Silla kingdom. When Chinese scholars travelled to Korea, they were horrified to discover that men and women mixed at nighttime musical performances. Korean daughters also inherited land and could perform ancestral rituals. Cultural homogenation may have been institutionalised by the Guageo, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Guageo, imperial examinations, which began in 1958 to 1894. During the Joseon dynasty, the exams were glorified. A family could only be considered noble if one member from the last four generations had passed the Guageo and served in government. The crimson certificate was treasured and handed down by generations. Aristocratic status thus depended on Confucian memorization. So that really fits with Yashen Huang's story for China. Now, centuries of Confucian authoritarianism certainly did not prohibit rapid economic growth. South Korea has since developed a wealthy economy, a militant labor movement, a strong democracy, and massive rallies for Me Too. VDEM ranks it as one of the world's most democratic countries. But despite all this disruption, South Korea still scores as culturally tight. In fact, it is one of the tightest societies in Gelfand et al.'s international sample. So how can we explain mass resistance? Well, if you go over to my Substack, uh, I've posted some pictures. I noticed when I was looking at Korean Me Too movements, they are all very, very coordinated. So the first image is of like all the women are carrying a purple sign with exactly the same text. In the next image, people are all coordinated. Some of them are wearing these black masks and they have a black placard all exactly the same size with exactly the same words and exactly the same lettering. The next picture is they're all carrying blue placards with yellow writing. In the next picture, they are carrying red placards with white writing, all the same text. The next picture, it is uh, they are either wearing black or white, and they have red posters. So they are tightly, tightly choreographed and color-coordinated. By contrast, if you look at London's 2018 Time's Up rally, it's very messy. Individuals come with their own signs, their own slogans and their own outfits. So people might say women's rights are human rights. Um, same shit, different century if they dress up as suffragettes. Or a woman brings her dog and says with a placard, even this dog knows no means no. Right? So there's a lot of creativity and mess. So cultural tightness is clearly no barrier to contentious politics as shown by South Korea's democratization. But I wonder if there's a threshold effect. If everyone is silent, 
individuals who fear social disapproval may be extremely reluctant to speak out. So sympathizers may only grow bolder when confident of wider solidarity and strength in numbers. This may help explain why Japan had no Me Too. It just didn't reach the necessary critical mass to overcome individual fears of disapproval. Women remained silent. So let me summarize. East Asians score very highly for cultural tightness. The available evidence points to ancestral rice farming, socioeconomic threats, Confucianism, and authoritarian institutions. It's difficult to disentangle um, their relative importance. I mean, I apologize if you think that's a, a cop-out, but I, I'm tempted to believe in a story of mutually reinforcing co-evolution. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Dr. Alice Evans, and this is Rocking Our Priors.